Welcome to this week's episode of PPE Unfiltered, the University of Warwick PPE Society's podcast. I'm Melissa Gibbons, the Society's Forum Coordinator, and in this episode we've got two interesting conversations. First, I talk to sports reporter, Women's Cricket Club President and PPE student Evie Ashton. We chatted about the situation surrounding sexism in sport at Warwick. Then, the Society's Charity Coordinator, Mera, talks to Barbara Ellsley from the NSPCC, the Society's chosen charity for this academic year. All right, so let's get straight into it. So kind of starting off with your report for the board that you did on sexism in sport and women in sport at Warwick in particular, I one of the things that I found really shocking was the story that you mentioned at the very beginning about women's toilets, toilet facilities being unavailable at the cricket pavilion when a member of the team was experiencing severe period pain. And I thought that really kind of captured the kind of sexism that does kind of run rampant through sport and um, has kind of represented in the issues with kind of facilities in sport that you go on to mention later on in the article. I just wanted to hear from you what how deep would you say that sexism goes in sport at Warwick in particular? I'd say the first thing to point out is that this does not just apply to Warwick and this at a university level, it will apply to every single university. Um, but for Warwick's case and for the sake of the article that I've written, I'd say that it does run rampant. Um, and that's not necessarily Warwick's fault of its own. There's arguments that it's, you know, because the whole nature or nurture thing, whether we're a product of our environment and whether it's because of our surroundings from when we were kids that have sort of led to the biases and the beliefs that we have. But essentially, what I argue in the article is that there is at Warwick this underlying bias or sort of belief that women's sport is secondary to men's sport. And so this sort of leads to everyone not just men, men and women, seeing women's sport as sort of inferior, uncompetitive, unprofessional. Um, and I mean, in the article, there are examples of this. Um, I'm not sure which team it was, but I know in one of the sports, there's, and this doesn't have, it's not just one sport, it's all the sports. Um, the men will say to one of the men that they deem to not be as good or worthy of the team, they'll say, oh, you should go trade with the women. You should go on the women's team. And it's like comments like that, um, which sort of you might not think when they say it, they don't they don't realize you don't they don't mean to be offensive to women. I don't think they they want to like offend women. So, it's, but that is a sexist comment. <laughs> so do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, there's and it's more, so ingrained as well, isn't it? Yeah. I think in terms of linguistic slights, which I also talk about in the article, um, it's stuff like, I mean, this is also higher up at the elite level where you've got things like like the Premier League, but then you have the Women's Super League and you have these gender markers and the gender is not applied in a lot of cases with men's sport. And you can see this at Warwick because... Um, women's rugby are called Warwick Women's Rugby, but men's rugby, they're called Rugby Union. 
And it's like, why have you applied to the gender marker to women, but not to the men kind of thing? And it's things like that. You don't really think about that because, well, it's rugby's rugby, you know, um, but it's there and it's it's implicit sexism in a way. Um, and then there's the whole like in sort of patronising language, which I know that probably coaches at Warwick use. They don't, it's not meant to be offensive, but things like being called girls or ladies, that's that's been happening from the testimonies um, that I've, that we investigated. Um, and then there was being sexualized on the pitch. That's happened at Warwick, unfortunately. Um, and then I guess, yeah, I'm pretty much listing the things from the article, but in terms of facilities, it was just facilities not being open when the women were training, mm. when the facilities would be open for the men. And it's like, why is there that? Why is that there? <laughs> why why is that thing? <laughs> um, so like the changing rooms for us were full of kit and women need to change. We can't just, especially in cricket, we can't just strip on the pitch because we have to put on thigh pads and we have to, you know, <laughs> take our clothes off to put the, the, the protective equipment on. And so we need those changing rooms. Um, and then we also need our kit because there were also examples of sports clubs. I've been unable to access their equipment because the, kit cupboard was shut and then that eats into their session and then it just mm. it just doesn't like it's it's like a vicious cycle because then people turn up to the session and then they see that the session's a mess and then they're like oh well why will I come again and this only happens in women's sport mm. so yeah that's that's on a Warwick level, but I'm sure this applies to many other universities. But obviously, I can only talk to talk for Warwick because I've only been to Warwick. <laughs> but yeah. is that kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you touched on quite a few different things there, um, and all of them kind of I think will be kind of really concerning to people who maybe aren't involved in a sports team and who had no idea that this kind of thing was going on. Um, especially kind of as a university that's kind of got increased awareness. Um, towards things like sexism and kind of um, discrimination in the wake of different different movements that we've seen on campus lately. So another thing that you mentioned in the article is the kind of belittling of exec members by work sport representatives kind of on kind of in discussions about women's sport. I was just wondering if Warwick sport have committed to kind of any sort of change and you know kind of what the, what the future kind of holds for um for their for their kind of actions because from what it seems to me it doesn't seem like they've um committed to any sort of change I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on that well in the article there is there's there's a bit of um like a response from the Warwick sport mm. director and the sports officer but they did get into contact with the um sports club presidents so all of the uh female identifying presidents of the clubs and the um for clubs that don't have a female identifying president um they would then send in a representative from a different exec but we all basically met and we spoke to um the sports officer and the warwick sport director and we had a really honest conversation and sort of the issues that go beyond the article because obviously the article did not it didn't there was a lot more that article was just like a mm. symptom of the problem there was there was a lot more that wasn't discussed and so it was 
sort of a an opportunity for everyone to say things that they haven't that haven't been put in the article and just really get to grips with what exactly the issue is um so it was very it was a very good um like productive meeting and we talked about solutions as well um so they do seem committed to doing something about it and they're also going to do a meeting with the same thing but with the men's president um so they've got meetings happening at the moment and like discuss i think the important thing that i also said in the article was about opening up like a discourse at least is like a good first step like obviously i'm not going to like be or oh, i'm not going to think that change is going to happen instantly because that would be very naive because it's it's like an incremental process um but this is there's good signs um as reason for optimism i'd say and then also he did they did go through both of the warwick sport and s sports they went through things that they've been they've put in so i think there should be um things in like the coaching pack about how like lang- linguistic like language use in terms of being inclusive um and with the whole report and support tool which is really useful and is great that all the exec um committees are doing that but obviously that's more of a that's not really preventing the the issue in the first place but it's good that it's there because it means that people can report when they experience sexism not just in sport as well um and then they also have the active bystander training um so there's those two things that well three things that that they mentioned to us but I'm hoping that we'll have more meetings in uh, the future for the long term. So this doesn't become just like a one-time thing. It's something that, because obviously being an exec is like you have a short-term, it's a short-term mm-hmm. position. As soon as you leave, the next lot are going to pick it up. And so you want to put in place something that's going to be long-term. Um, yeah, I've got a bit on a bit of a tangent now. <laughs> but No, that's all right. And I think that's, that's really good. I think. It's really good, really reassuring, I think, to hear that there is some kind of progress. And I think that will be kind of very, yeah, reassuring, as I said, for a lot of them, um, for everyone, really. Because, you know, as, as you touched on kind of in response to the first question I asked, you know, it is is something that does impact everyone, not just women. Yeah. So um, kind of if every, anyone's been walking around campus lately or seen uh, quite a few um, kind of billboards up I guess um advertising that varsity is just around the corner so if anyone's not aware of what that is that's the annual annual series of uh matches against Coventry in our different kind of in their kind of counterpart teams to ours um I think a lot of sports are represented and I think most years if not all we win so it should be should be a good should be a good show so um kind of in re- tying that into what we've been talking about what would you like to see happen at varsity over varsity weekend to further the women's sports teams that we have at work um i think so i have a couple of things i think firstly i think this happens anyway but obviously i'm a second year so i wasn't there so in first year varsity didn't happen. Mm. So this will be my first varsity, but it would be 
ideal to see instead of women going to watch the women their fellow women's sports so like women's hockey going to watch women's cricket um it would be good to, to see sort of um women's hockey going and watching men's hockey so that and then men's hockey and watching women's hockey mm. so that it's not just women watching women's sport and men watching men's sport is what i'm trying to say it's right cross cross what's the word <laughs> basically i'm just not not just think like this where i'm coming from is that the whole idea is that um only women are interested in women's sport right yeah men are only interested in men's sport um and women aren't just interested in sport at all to be honest <laughs> um but yeah basically support across both um all genders really um that would be ideal um and then secondly but i'm sure that happens anyway i, I know that men's cricket will come and watch women's cricket and women's cricket will go and watch men's cricket and that kind of thing but mm. it, it would just so basically just a continuation of what's happened in the past mm. um and then secondly the i'm not sure how it works this is the issue but ideally a lot of media coverage mm. So ideally, we'd have reporters covering the women's sports and the men's sports and hopefully some diversity amongst the journalists, mm. the student journalists who are covering those matches. Um, a lot of, like, in terms of photos and videos, like visual media being used, that needs to be as diverse as possible as well. Mm. Um, and obviously the same quality because a lot of the problem one of the main problems that women's sport also faces is the fact that the, they do get cut they'll get coverage but then the, the quality of that coverage is just rubbish and so at varsity i'm just applying what you see at the elite level to varsity okay. like, um just seeing the same i'm sure there will be i don't have any doubts about this not happening but like the same quality same quantity of coverage uh, for both the men and women's sport, basically. Mm. Um, but yeah, and it would be great to see as many um, many sports having a men's and women's team as possible. Obviously, COVID has hit, so it would be a shame if some clubs missed out. Um, mm. But yeah, I think those were the two main things in terms of varsity. Excellent. It sounds like we've got a really good opportunity there to really um, kind of foster that um, those kind of relationships between the different um, sports teams. And hopefully we can get some of our listeners to show their support for um, a wide variety of sports teams that will be playing that weekend. So kind of on that on that similar tangent, um, you are president of women's cricket. And you've reported on some big cricket matches. You know the women's game really well, and kind of the challenges that um, that's the particular sport has faced. Um, recently, you were involved in reporting on the 100 tournament. I was really interested in hearing about more about what that tor- tournament is and how it differs to different cricket tournaments, and also how and if you think that it has helped women's cricket in particular.
I'm going to remember both of those. <laughs> um, so how it differs from, in like, just objectively how it differs in terms of the format. Um, oh, God, this, this a whole, cricket is quite a complex sport. You've got 50, 50 over format, you've got test format and 20 over format, and then you do have 10 over format, but we'll just leave that to the side. Um, <laughs> but basically... <laughs> Um, so, for example, in a T20, it's 20 overs. So one team bats for 20 overs and then the other team bats for 20 overs. But in the 100, so in one over is um, six balls. So that's 120 balls for each team to deal with. Um, whereas in the 100, it's called the 100 because there's only 100 balls. Um, so if one team gets 100 balls and then switch over, next team gets 100 balls. So that's how it differs to normal cricket. And the point of that was to, because cricket is known for being quite a complex, hard to understand sport. And myself, I found I had to watch a lot of videos to learn the rules. Like it's it's not easy. Um, but once you do get into it, it's really good. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, but yeah, the point was that it was trying to appeal to a new audience and sort of younger generations to try and bring a more diverse just bring more people into cricket um, because mm. it's arguably easier to understand because they also, they, there's only, there's only five balls in an over, whereas normally there's six. And so it's just about trying to reduce the complexity and um, it's shorter times between changing overs. So after five balls have bowled, they're only allowed like 30 seconds or something like that. They have mm, to do it very yeah. quickly. It's like a quite a high paced game, which is good for younger children instead of the test format, which lasts for days. So it's good for in that it's like a two-hour match or sometimes even under two hours. So then children can also go to bed early. Um, so that's how it differs. And in terms of how it's helped women's cricket, um, so it's completely different in the fact that normally you have separate men's and women's competitions. But in this competition, on each day, they would have a men's match followed by or no, it would be a women's match followed by a men's match, like a double header. So straight one after the other, starting at like, I don't know, like from two till, I don't know, like six or eight. Um, so it'd all be in one go. And the idea was that the men's and women's teams were treated on like an equal footing, on equal standings. Um, so one wasn't seen as better than the other. They were getting the same same time, same same coverage as well. Um, so it's just about <clears throat> sort of getting rid of that bias, mm -hmm. um, or that belief again, which I mentioned before, that the men are superior or women's sport is inferior. Um, I mean, they had equal prize money. I mean, there wasn't equal pay, but that's a whole other thing. But the, the idea that there was equal prize money is quite significant because you don't get that in other competitions. Um, and then they had... They had much better coverage for this. Well, not much better, but they had great coverage for this tournament. If it was free to air on TV, I think, which is new for domestic women's cricket because it's it's really not had that kind of thing before, um, which is one of the reasons why it suffers. Um, but, yeah, there were loads of matches on YouTube uh, to watch, which was fantastic. Um, and just seeing women's sport or women's cricket in particular being treated with a high quality coverage so like you um like literally just like like 4k tv b 
being one of the things and then having all those different camera angles like that actually makes such a difference and having high quality commentary um having like pundits and and commentators just put like thoroughly analyze the players which isn't hasn't really consistently happened throughout the women's game um so that that is one of the reasons why the hundreds been so good for women's cricket um and then alongside that i think they launched sort of like a grassroots setup thing called Dy- dynamos i think um and that's sort of to use the traction that the hundred has is to what's the word so the hundreds brought in new audiences but obviously if there's no grassroots setup to actually bring the children to actually play cricket then nothing's going to happen in the future like you've just got people watching cricket and then no children are actually ever going to pick it up but they've set up this um not not platform but they've set up trainings for kids so mm-hmm. they get involved when the hundred is happening and they're watching it on tv and then going to training the next day and then it you know it means that they can watch their stars their idols and then play the sport themselves um so yeah that's that's all that on that front I think in terms of how it's how it differs and how it's helped women's cricket it's pretty it's quite a big moment in um cricket to be honest because there's not I mean the only other example I can think of this is in Australia they have similar double headers um in a domestic competition that they run but in India, for example, they have the Indian Premier League, but they don't have a women's in Indian Premier League yet. So it's kind of sent, set like a precedent in a way. So hopefully other countries will follow kind of thing. Absolutely. And I find that really interesting. I was not something I, I was too familiar with before, and but I'll definitely be looking out for it uh, next uh, next time it comes around. So we you touched on the kind of the idea that women are kind of seen secondary to men's teams, um, kind of sort of like there are some sort of afterthought really. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering what you would like to see done or happen that could really help the general population to see them as equal and kind of on an equal footing with one another. Um. Well, there's sort of a vicious cycle because if there's no media coverage of women's sport, then no one wants to invest in it. And then if no one invests in it, the women don't get to train. And because they don't get to train, well, the skill level might not be as good or it might not be as entertaining. Um, So it's basically about tackling that and basically when there is equal investment and equal equal everything like equal training equal access to like sport science and equal access to fitness just um like the whole aftercare bit so like physical training and blah blah blah. when when the men and the women have equal opportunities in that then the skill is exactly the same the only difference is power and strength um so Remind me of the question again, so I don't go off on a tangent again. Just we were just talking about we, how we could how we could make kind of the general population, kind of the okay. average sports viewer, see them as equal. Yeah. So the only way they're going to see them as equal is if the media coverage is the same. 
because if there's literally no coverage of women, they're not going to see any women. And then it's just natural for people to assume that obviously they don't play sport. They don't, they don't know how to play. They're not playing. Like there's no women's sport. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's loads of different ways to go about it, but the main one is um, there's the whole, you, you need to see it to be it. Mm. So if kids aren't seeing women on TV, then they're not going to feel inspired. They're not going to have those role models mm. and they're then going to internalize that belief um, as well that, women are inferior in the sport in a sport way um so yeah it's about getting women female athletes on tv doing sport not just because in the past media has consistently sexualized women in sport and even just there's even examples of racism especially like serena williams has been targeted by a lot of that um but yeah, so stop. Let's stop sexualizing female athletes. Let's Absolutely. treat them as athletes. Let's not forget about their gender. It's not relevant. Let's see them for what they are, which is just strong, strong athletes playing sport. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess it's TV, radio. I mean, sort of. It's not just seeing them play their sport, it's also interviewing them and speaking to them about their stories um, mm. and getting to know them as people because we see like interviews with um, with men all the time and it's really good because you get to learn their personalities and you get to choose who your mm. favourites are and then if you don't have Absolutely. that with women, then there's the tendency again to think that, well, they're just unimportant <laughs> or like you don't really have that emotional investment in them mm. um so yes yeah, i'd say it's all about media and then because that media well it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation but if the if the media improves then they'll get more sponsors and more investment and mm. then that will have multiplier effects because then the standard will get better and then women will get paid better and they won't have to have side jobs and the quality will increase, which will then make it better to watch on TV. Mm. So we need investment as well. <laughs> they need to invest the, the grassroots level for women in particular, um, to sort, which would then will deal with all these other problems and the ultimate secondary belief thing. Um, so yeah, um, I think that's, that's enough on that one. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a really kind of great call to action. And I think, you know, as you highlight, there's some very straightforward things. Well, they might not be straightforward in the realisation, but it's not hard to know what we need to do to improve um, kind of the gender balance in sport and really kind of, in, you know, inspire young girls to take up sport and um, kind of get involved and see see their, see their idols uh, kind of achieving achieving great things. So I'm just going to move on to my final question now. Um, I just wanted to know kind of through your journey, kind of being involved in women in sport, um, kind of speaking out against sexism in sport. I just wanted to hear your kind of thoughts on what you have learned since starting this, this kind of journey that you've been involved in. (laughs) 
Let me have a think. What have I learned? I can hear music. I don't know about can you hear that? No. Okay, that's all right then. I got worried. You good. <laughs> um what have I learned from this? Well, I've learned that <laughs> women in sport don't get the investment that they deserve. They don't get the equal opportunities they deserve. And the more you read about it, the more you realise how bad it is mm. and how much needs to be done. And so I've learned so much just from researching the article, um, what needs to be done. And especially how like an intersectional approach needs to also be taken because you can't just say women it's women we just need to solve women's problems like they become far more intricate or complex when you bring in race um like like sexual orientation just those sort of characteristics when you bring that in so I guess it's made me a better critical thinker in a way right yeah let me, I think what I'm trying to say, it's not, um, let me think. I think I'm more aware of my privilege, basically. Right, okay. Um, so sexism in sport manifests itself in so many different ways. And obviously mm. I'm white, white woman mm. and so it is completely different for for different ethnic minorities who mm. will have different experiences and it's important to not just apply one slap bang solution like like you have to go into communities and there's an example of this um i think ebony rainford brent set up a new um she set up this um, organisation, but this sort of outreach programme trying to get more black mm. kids into um, playing cricket. Mm. And so it's just about, yeah, as I said, that intersectional approach, um, being aware that not everyone's experiences are the same and just basically not taking things for granted and not just, like, thinking twice when you look at, the web like the news the sports section on the website mm. thinking twice when you see that the entire page is just men's sport <laughs> and not just yeah. thinking, oh, that's normal just thinking 50 mm, percent of the population <laughs> right <laughs> yeah they're not there anymore <laughs> so just thinking twice i think about the things that i see and then just realizing how there's a lot of ableism as well which mm. i definitely Feel like I need to be more aware of in society and like with the whole um with the whole facility the toilets being unaccessible at first I was like this is an issue for people who menstruate like her menstruators but not only is it an issue for people with periods it's also an issue for people who have ac- accessibility needs so right if yeah to come and watch cricket but the toilets like a 10 minute walk away that's just not ideal at all and especially mm-hmm. people with disabilities and things like that it's just made me far more aware that can't take things for granted I need to I want to try and break down as many barriers as possible and just think mm-hmm. twice 
basically that just because there's a solution for people like me then might the solution might not apply to other people kind of thing mm. absolutely and I think that's a really lovely note to kind of end on a very a very thoughtful thoughtful reflection and something um yeah a really a really nice takeaway from kind of our, our discussion today so thank you so much for joining me and having a chat with me today um I've really enjoyed it and I feel like I've learned quite a lot actually um which has been really nice uh just before we go I was just wondering if people were interested in kind of here it's kind of reading a bit more of your writing on cricket and women's sport where they could find out um where they could find out more about that and if you've got anything to plug in general I suppose yeah I mean thank you so much for having me it's been really fun um I love talking about this kind of thing so if you want to do it again let's do it um I mean um things in terms I'll I'll plug my Twitter which is EVR Ashton I think (laughs) imagine knowing my own Twitter handle um but yeah I post a lot on there about um uh women in sport issues particularly um and just my own general opinion basically and then I plug my own articles within that but yeah I've written a lot of things for the ball um so yeah check out the ball guys yeah (laughs) um as I'm sure Alyssa will know (laughs) yeah um whilst that I'll plug women's cricket anyone who wants to start a new sport come along to a session we have (laughs) rock up and play on Thursdays at 11.15. So okay. if you want to try a new sport, guys, women's cricket is here. We're here for that. I actually, I want to plug a book, actually. If you want to know more about this, um, go for it. Yeah. a book called Game On by Sue Antis. And that's really super eye-opening. I've learned so much from that book. It covers so much in terms of women's sport and its progress and where it needs to go, solutions, things like that. Um, so I'll plug that book. Um, so yeah. That sounds like a great read. It's wow. all right. We'll leave that there today. Thank you very much once again. And thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today, Ms. Barbara. Could we please start with a summary of the NSPCC? Maybe a brief summary of its origin and what it stands for. Okay, Um, hello. Uh, Right, so the NSPCC is the National Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Um, We were founded in 1884 by Sir Benjamin Vaughan. And at that time, um, laws had been brought in to protect animals, but there was nothing to protect children. And he saw that children were living in quite often in squalid kind of conditions. Um, Children were being beaten, children were being starved. Um, They were being treated abysmally. So he founded the NSPCC, which obviously if you do the maths, we've we've been around for over 130 years now. Um, the work we do has changed over time, but we still stand for, um, we're trying to prevent cruelty to children, and that is still our mission. Our work has very much changed with the online world. Um, one, of the, one of our priorities at the moment is to make the internet safe for children. 
um, but we also have a vision that um, childhood is worth fighting for. So we believe that every child um, should have a, a carefree um, childhood and that's what we stand for. We stand there to protect children and to make sure that they can sort of reach their dreams and that they live life in a, in a happy and carefree way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thank you very much. Uh, moving on to the next question. As we are in a very challenging time with COVID-19, what is your view on the challenges that the pandemic has produced for the NSPCC, especially in, for the children and their growth, especially considering how you outlined the importance of children and uh, their needs that you guys cater towards? Okay, well, um, the NSPCC provides um, many services, but one of which is Childline, and that is a service that is free. It's a 24-hour helpline for children, um, accessible either on the phone or online. And children turn to us for help, support, advice, anyway. You know, we're open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And children, um, sometimes they call us for advice, sometimes they call us if you know, to disclose abuse for the first time. Sometimes they, um, well, they call us for various reasons, um, whether they've got family issues, relationship issues, whether they're being bullied, whether they're being abused. Sometimes they have questions around their sexuality. Um, sometimes they have questions that they've got nobody else to ask. We are kind of like a, a fourth emergency service for children. And um, during the pandemic, we saw um, our, the, you know, the number of children contacting us soared during the pandemic because for many children um, going to school gives them a support mechanism if you're living in a household whether there's domestic violence or whether there's drug or alcohol abuse going to school actually gives children um, a space a free space and obviously when lockdown happened in covid that meant children were you know stuck at, stuck indoors with their families um, or for some children, if you, for example, if your parents are separated and you spend your time between two households, again, until the government changed things, at one point you were stuck with just one side of your family. Um, many children, um, you know, and families live in very small areas, you know, school gave them the space to run around, a garden, you know, outdoor space. So the, and also children that have already got mental health issues, sort of, and young people happening lockdown created an awful lot more anxiety for children and young people um, and we had calls from from young people that we'd never heard of before but with the pandemic they were worried about their loved ones they were worried um, about their friendships they were worried about school and as the pandemic progressed and schools opened then we, um, we had anxieties around um, going back to school um, so it created all sorts of problems and in actual fact we had to work very very quickly um, in order to keep the service going and whilst the service was going we a lot of our volunteers had to change to working at home which we've never done before normally our volunteers go it come into a base um, so we had to react very quickly and we also have an online presence so we kept very very much up to date with what what was happening and giving help and advice for um, children and young people we also have a helpline, um, which is for adults that are concerned about the welfare of children. And um, pre-pandemic, schools are often listening the ears and eyes 
um, looking out for children. So some children that might not be under social services care, teachers and playground assistants, etc., normally can spot children that they're worried about and they can actually keep an eye on them. But obviously the pandemic meant everybody went indoors. So um, the government actually did give us some money so we could have an advert to let people know that if they have concerns about the welfare of a child, they could ring our helpline. And that could be anything from just, you know, hearing lots of shouting um, and things next door, or if they um, just heard or saw that they thought children needed um, help. So again, our helpline, sort of the numbers calling them sort of, you know, doubled during the pandemic. And then the one of our other services um, is the Speak Out, Stay Safe, which is our school service. We go into schools, into primary schools, and we deliver assemblies teaching children um, how to keep themselves safe. And we, it's a very interactive assembly and the children get involved, but we talk to them about having a trusted adult. And if they have any cares or worries to speak to a trusted adult, but if they haven't got anybody they can turn to, to ring Childline, because Childline is there for every child, um, whatever their worries. So when the pandemic happened and schools closed, again, we weren't able to go into schools. So what we did is we reacted quite quickly and we adapted um, an online assembly so we could um, deliver um, assemblies to schools that they could use during their sort of online presence. Um, just to make sure that children were getting messages about how to keep themselves safe and who to contact if they had any cares or worries. So that's a bit of a whistle stop tour as to how, how we adapted. Um, but during COVID times, we also launched an appeal which was still here for children. And it was just letting children know that despite what was going on around them and in the world, NSPCC and Childline were still there. So if they had, if they needed help from us, we were, st we, we were still here. Wow, that's great to hear that the NSPCC has adapted so greatly in such a short notice and the effects that the children have been facing over the last year, it's truly devastating to hear and hopefully we can get through these challenging times soon. Staying on the topic of COVID-19, from an economic perspective, I'd like to ask how the pandemic affected funding and donations from people within the NSPCC. Right, well, the NSPCC relies on funding um, from our supporters for over 90% of all of our income. So we're relying on the generosity of our supporters to, to keep our services going. Um, when the pandemic hit, um, I'll be honest, we were slightly thrown in disarray um, thinking, oh my goodness me, what's going to happen? Because a lot of our um, funding comes from people putting on events such as the London Marathon, um, from companies, from individuals. So we had to act very quickly and um, and whilst we did lose some supporters, you know, some people sort of said, well, you know, we, we can't support you, we can't afford to. Where people could support us, they stepped up. So actually over the year, we, we came out okay, you know, as, as an organisation, we, we were okay. But what we found was that the people that could give, gave more. So for some people that um, couldn't go out, but... Um, could afford it they 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 gave they gave us donations when when people heard that childline needed you know were there people gave us more money um 
And then we had to be very sort of um, innovative. And like, for example, the London Marathon became a virtual event. So um, people that had started fundraising could run the marathon in, in their own location. Um, so that was able to take place. A lot of our events became Zoom events, you know, so um, so whereas people, if they had to cancel an event, they, we, we had all sorts of um, Zoom quiz nights, Zoom bingo nights. We even, you know, some people that did like were doing like a you know, virtual coffee mornings. So we had to kind of be kind of quite receptive and, and quite fast thinking, changing what we did. Um, we in also introduced some fundraising um, initiatives such as Walk for Children which was on the shortest day um, of the year on December, we asked people to walk five kilometers and raise money that way. So it was something that people could do either by themselves or with family members, because we had to be very, very mindful of what the government guidelines were about people meeting and interacting. So any and everything we could think of, we did to, to still enable people to bring money in. And in some cases, um, we have a big carol concert, big Christmas concert in London that went online. People did online raffles, oh, you know, you name it, the things people did online was, was quite amazing. And even the, the physical events that couldn't happen, what we did is we, um, in some cases where it was appropriate, some of our sort of loyal supporters that have been fundraising for years wrote to their supporters and said, look, this can't go ahead this year. Um, we've had to cancel the event. However, you know, the children still need us. In fact, they need us more than ever. If you can, would you be prepared to donate the cost of your ticket, even though you're not coming? So, um, so people were very generous with things like that. And then as we started to come out of the pandemic, you know, people were having their post-lockdown head shaved, you know, for, for us. For the London Marathon, we came up with different challenges for when um, we were training for the marathon instead of the 26 miles we did the 2.6 challenge so you could do anything around 2.6 um, so you could you know cycle 26 miles or you could walk 2.6 miles we just became very sort of inventive with what people could do so our income over the year actually was stable but I think it was down to the generosity of our um, supporters and you know um, the innovative ways our supporters carried on supporting us. That's great to hear, especially considering how um, I think many people during the pandemic would uh, arguably target the financial sector, the private sector, and just the economy as a whole and look at businesses and complain about how they are being affected in negative ways. People are losing jobs, but it's also very important to keep in mind that the psychological damage children are facing at such a crucial time is also very pivotal for their growth and possibly their achievements, considering how they adapt and how they maintain their psychological selves during this, these dark times. Moving on mm -hmm. to the next question. Um, are there any short-run goals or projects of the NSPCC that we could participate and or help with? In general, this is just projects or goals that people who are not affiliated with our society could help with to generally support the NSPCC. Yes, definitely. Um, we're all the NSPCC is always looking for um, new supporters, and we welcome um, students and young people taking part, helping um, helping us to to raise funds. Um, we have on our website. I mean, we have um, sort of fundraising ideas, so anybody can come up with any idea they want, request a pack, and, and go ahead. But um, 
we always fundraise at Christmas. At Christmas time, it's a, one of our sort of pivotal times because um, I think a lot of people think about children at Christmas time. And for many children, they won't be having the festive fun that is portrayed on TV adverts, etc. For some of them, they, they need support. And, and like I said earlier, quite often, you know, um, when schools are not open, when children are on school holidays, that for those children that are living in a neglected household or in a household without emotional support, um, actually being at home is the worst thing for a child. So, but generally speaking, I mean, we welcome anybody. Uh, we have an array of runs, cycle rides, hikes, etc., that people can get involved in at any time. So I think all of those events are coming back. Um, for example, you know, the Great North Run, we have runs in London, we have runs, um, there is the two castles run in Warwickshire. But anyway, we have all sorts of, um, if people are active, people want to take part in an event, we have all sorts of cycle rides, runs, walks, tough mudders, all of those kind of things. But equally, people can just set up um, a day, a go green day. We do a go green for Halloween. So like around Halloween time, people can dress up, uh, make a donation, maybe do raffles. Um, it's kind of any and everything, but we have a support team in the Midlands. I mean, I'm the community fundraising manager for um, Warwickshire, but we have a support team as well. So, you know, people want to do raffles or they want to dress up, dress down, do a sporting challenge, you know, whatever. Um, we, me and our team are there to support them. And we always say, well, you might, I always say about fundraising should be fun. So if people wanted to do, you know, um, an 80s night, 70s night, 60s night, any and everything really, it's just a case of um, we need the funding. Uh, Childline, um, a quarter Childline costs us four pounds. It's free to the child or young person, but it costs us four pounds. And, you know, we can only answer three out of four calls. So any and everything anybody can do to help us raise money just helps us to be there for more children and to make sure we can answer all, all the calls and contacts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Awesome. Um, yeah, thank you very much for your time in general. And yeah, on behalf of the University of Warwick's PPE Society, I'd like to thank you very much for your time and insightful knowledge that you've shared with us today. Uh, giving uh, given what you said, I think it's our responsibility to look at what these children face and then give back as much as we can, considering that their age different, their age group is not that much far from ours. And we're in a very fortunate situation, even in such a time, given the COVID-19 pandemic. And thus, I believe it is our role and duty to give back to society as much as we can. Therefore, I hope our society, our university, and other people interested can host great events in the upcoming year and help the NSPCC as much as we can. And we once again thank you for helping the children that are in need the most. And yeah, we hope to have a good year ahead. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PPE Unfiltered podcast. We hope you find these conversations insightful. Check out the episode description for some relevant links. See you next week.